Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today on Crafted, we are making good on a promise that we made at the end of Episode 7, which was a conversation I had with the Alchemist co-founder, John Kimmich. At the end of Episode 7, John and I talked about how we were going to do a follow-up conversation that was entirely dedicated to the many sustainability initiatives at The Alchemist. And so this week, I was back at The Alchemist in Stowe, Vermont, and I was sitting down with Jen Kimmich and John because, as John very eloquently talked about at the end of Episode 7, because Jen has been a huge force behind many of the sustainability initiatives at The Alchemist. And I should say, if you have not yet listened to episodes six and seven, well, the reason that we are doing this particular conversation on sustainability initiatives, it is because I think The Alchemist is a really shining example of a company that has tried their best to become more sustainable on many different fronts. So it was wonderful to be back at The Alchemist in Stowe, Vermont, and it was fantastic to sit down with John and Jen to just hear more about their own trajectory along these lines. And what my hope is, is that this will serve as both an inspiration and as a bit of a practical guide to many other companies out there that would like to think through and improve upon their own procedures and processes. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Jen and John Kimmich. Here we go. Well, I am very happy to be back in Stowe at The Alchemist. And this time I get to sit down with Jen and John and we teased this conversation on our last podcast conversation, John, but today we're here to talk about the many things that The Alchemist is doing in terms of sustainability. And I think we said this on tape, like, well, then we really need to be bringing Jen in on this because she understands you know, the nuts and bolts of what's happening here. And so I'm um, really happy to be back and to, uh, to have this conversation today. So thanks for being here, you two. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. So Jen, in our last conversation, we kind of got a really interesting history of The Alchemist. And I guess one of the things that I've been wondering about the most is when for you did the questions about sustainability and sustainability practices, where and when in the history of The Alchemist did those things start becoming prominent to you in terms of how do we implement some of these things into our business? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, we've been asked that before, and I think it's really hard to pinpoint one specific time. I guess to start off, you know, 
John and I are environmentalists first. We love the outdoors. We love to ski and ride and bike. Our, our life really revolves around being outdoors in the water with our sun, everything. So first and foremost, we love the environment. It's important to us. And I think with all companies, it really does come from the top, you know, the drive to make a difference. Um, but early on when we were a pub and all we ever planned on doing was having a pub, that was our life dream. We didn't make much money. We didn't have a lot of money. Um, but we cared. So it was always finding little steps that were meaningful that had an impact, um, whether it was saving our food scraps and they went to pig farmer or went to compost or using biodegradable packaging um, or not having you know bottles of ketchup, but using bulk. It's always these small steps you take, making sure everything is recycled properly, not having portions that are too big, you know, just chipping away. And then, you know, ultimately we ended up making money, you know, when we opened up our second production brewery, we didn't have much when we opened that second production brewery, but after we were open a while and we started bringing money in, that's when we started really chipping away at um, our environmental initiatives. And it wasn't quick, it wasn't overnight, but the first thing that we prioritized was um, when we had a bit of money beyond the recycling and things like that was our water, our water handling, because we recognized that that was the biggest impact we were having on the environment, specifically our local community and our wastewater system. And roughly what year are we talking about here? This is 2011. 2011, 2012, we really started talking about the water and what we can do, not only to be well within our limits, that our permit limits, but to get far below our permit limits so that we felt good about what we were putting in the wastewater system. Because we knew we were really learning at the time what havoc our waste, our organic waste were having on not only the wastewater system, but then our waterways here in Vermont, our lakes, our rivers. That's when we really started to recognize all of the algae blooms in Lake Champlain. That's when we became members of Lake Champlain International. So, you know, I think that drive really came from two things. First was regulation that we started to fall under in our permit limits. And the second thing was our own education and our own recognition of what we were doing to the environment. Yeah. And, you know, that's why we always say regulation is important. Businesses don't even sometimes know they are hurting the environment if they're not forced to do something. And I will say, in the beginning, it was that regulation and along with our own education that really opened up our eyes. Yes, everything Jen said about the water. Um, immediately, it just takes me back to the original question when you first started talking, and I'd like to hear Jen say more about it too, is um, what Jonathan and I started to get into in that first interview as uh, the many facets and um, different types of sustainability. And yeah. Jen was instrumental in what I consider an important part of sustainability, which is people's well-being and health and, and job security and things like that, uh, that Jen will be able to speak to eloquently when we professionalized our positions and stuff like that. So even our take on human sustainability has been a part of our game plan from the very start. Uh, you know, Jen just spoke about the water, but again, even in those early days, that's a, that's a very small piece of the puzzle because I think in those early days, it wasn't so much we were looking at it as a sustainability thing. It was just what we were doing was in line with our values 
and then it blossoms out of there as, as you do more and you learn more and you realize how it all ties together. Absolutely. We were never checking off boxes. You know, we didn't have a grand plan. We were just doing things as we could. We were kind of chasing our tails, you know, just starting to make money. What should we do? But John's point about the human sustainability is really important. And I was really just speaking about the environmental stuff. But early on, we recognized um, the importance of building a strong workplace, a strong workplace culture, um, having our employees believe in us, um, having them feel supported and making sure they can make ends meet. So early on, even when we weren't really making much money at all, we professionalized as many roles as possible. You know, we had dishwashers and hostesses on pay on salary, um, paid time off, um, health insurance as we could do it. And then we just slowly professionalized more roles, giving bartenders health insurance servers. And today, gosh, today we do everything we can from having a wellness director to healthy snacks, um, you know, a great 401k program, but those things didn't happen overnight. It was slow because we just didn't have the resources. But John's really right. I think it's not just for us. You know, we want to have a lifestyle and a career that's sustainable. We want all of our employees to. We want them to be here for a really long time. Of course, these two things we've kind of just moved into, you know, human sustainability or we, that's sometimes I think can get called economic sustainability, right? Not just that the company needs to be on sure financial footing, but then let's make sure employees are as well. And these things are, I think, often put in tension with one another. So you can either be economically sustainable or you can kind of be environmentally sustainable. And I think it would be very interesting for people to just hear in the case of the alchemist, were those things at odds or was it always just a bit of stops and starts and we can improve a bit in this area and then two years later we made a move in this other area but i guess the point of my question is how does one actually go about doing both of those very big things well you know when we are asked why do you do these environmental initiatives? Do you make money off of them? Does it save you money? Or why do you provide provide these benefits? That's so nice of you. We always say we're really not nice people. You know, we do these things because they're good for the bottom line. It's good business. We know it costs us less to provide health insurance than to hire and fire 20 people a year. We know it costs us less to keep our employees healthy so that we are productive and our workplace is healthy. You know, we know it's good for the bottom line. As far as our environmental initiatives go, I mean, we just got $40,000 in electric credits the last six months from our solar, and we are in the cloudiest, one of the cloudiest states in the country. That's good for our bottom line. It's good for our equity, and it's good for our branding and our marketing. So, you know, we don't do these things because we're nice. It's good for business, and I don't find them to be at odds with each other because our employees take such pride in the environmental work we do, and so do our customers. And it all pays off. It really does. What we see a lot, John and I, and I'm sure you do too, is so many new companies, so many emerging, growing companies are really setting themselves up to sell. They want to go public or they want to sell out and get rich. And I think 
a lot of businesses just want to know how will this pay off for me or what are the what's the short term uh, return on this and you know these aren't short term returns these are investments for the long run and John and I are doing this till the day we die so you know it's different you know is it worth it if you plan on selling in two years probably not but is your heart really in the business so you know they're they're big questions but we were just talking this weekend my brother Ron was in town and we we're having all kinds of different conversations and. You know, the idea of like, what do they call it? Soft quitting, stuff like that. Quiet quitting. Quiet quitting. There you go. Quiet quitting, not soft quitting. <laughs> neither Apparently, neither of us are yeah. quietly quitting at the moment. <laughs> Quiet quitting. And the idea that what we see often with young people um, that are getting into entrepreneurship or just the world of work they think that their jobs are going to give them some sort of magic satisfaction and that they're going to derive all this happiness from their job. And they think that that just happens, um, which is really crazy because, you know, Jen and I, yes, we've created this world that we've always dreamt of living in, you know, our business, our lifestyle. We created this and we have built this, everything around us. So before we had that, we had crappy job after crappy job, unsatisfying job. And it's a weird thing the way people expect to just hit it out of the park right out of the gate. And and um, you don't have to have a job that fulfills you. I mean, when you're young and you're working, every job you have, whether it's good or bad, you're learning. If you have a crap job, don't just come in and blow it off and go back out the door. You have things to learn at that crap job. You've, you are learning what not to do if you're ever going to be a business owner. Open your eyes. What do you see happening? What don't you like? Make note of that and don't do that if you are ever fortunate enough to employ people. And so... There's a there's a certain amount of just, you know, people say you got to pay your dues and there's truth to that. You know, you you have to you derive your life's pleasure in different ways. And the idea of building a business just to sell it, then what? Having money isn't <laughs> that's not going to drive your happiness. I mean, how many wealthy people have to say that or tell you money doesn't bring happiness. I mean, that saying has been around forever. And so there's a certain amount of, for us, and again, looping back to sustainability, it's the creating the kind of business that we want to work till the day we die. Um, and we would love it if our employees were lifetime employees. It, we've really done our job well, if that's the case, you know, because you're creating this fulfilling um, satisfying environment for people to express themselves in and earn a living at the same time. That all dovetails, I think, really well with what Jen was saying a minute ago about vision and purpose. And ultimately, fundamentally, I think as human beings, we either really need vision and purpose, or I don't know if that is a need, but we sure as hell crave it, I think. And I think that as in, as individuals, if we don't have that, we are going to feel lost or depressed or discontent, restless. And so, whether a person is finding 
purpose and vision just in their own individual life. Hopefully they are. But man, if they're able to work for a company where the vision and purpose and priorities and principles are clear, one, on a human level, I think that's critical. But two, to Jen's point earlier, on a business level, that actually just makes really good sense in addition to (laughs) hitting the kind of existential part of what we're doing, like just being alive with our time on the planet. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as far as our time on the planet go, goes, John said it. I mean, we created this life for ourselves that we want, you know, and I can't tell you how often we both get asked, boy, why haven't you sold, you know, because, you know, we're the alchemists. Of course, we've had interest over the years, you know, the last time being during COVID and you know, we, it's all, we're always quick to say, no, no, COVID was really hard. We dug deep. We visualized what that would look like. We were scared. We jumped away from it really quick. We hated it because we love our life. This is it. We're committed to it. Um, you know, we get to come to work. John gets to create beer. I get to work with people I love. We both get to be environmentalists. We get to stand up for our values. We get to be defend democracy whenever we get a chance. I mean, how can you walk away from that? It's a, it's a real gift, and it's a gift for all of us. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, what Jen was hitting on earlier, you know, saying we don't do this because we're nice. I, we are. You know, I, I, I you know, yeah, yeah, it's kidding. Um, but you have to but care. But the way it dovetails, I mean, you can start a business and care about a lot of different things. How you're impacting your environment, how what you're doing for the people that are working with you, not for you, they're working with us to achieve our vision of what we want to do. It. We take great pride in knowing that we have employees that are willing to, you know, I always, I always liken it to a, a hurtling train. We are a very, um, very fast, very sleek, streamlined train hurtling through space and time. And we have employees that have hitched their car to that train. You don't just jump off when it's hauling ass through the universe and say, ah, okay, we're off. We created this, but we're bailing. You, you just can't do that. The The train will crash and destroy itself. Nor would we ever want to do that because again, then you're just sitting on the side of the tracks. What are you doing? You know, you had this beautiful train that you built and you're cruising along and now you're not on it anymore. It, this business gives us a voice and it gives us the power to enact change as we see fit. I think it's a, not to keep going with this metaphor, but I I think a big part of our success is we've kept that train in control and it's never gone too fast. You know, we could be five times as big as we are. We could be 10 times as big. You know, we have been in business almost 20 years and we only make 20,000 barrels of year. Uh, beer a year. That's between two production breweries. It has been very slow and very deliberate. And every time we have a bump in production or we change operations, our staff knows what's happening. There are never any surprises and everyone's a part of that transition. So no one ever feels unsupported in an uncontrolled train. And, you know, I say that because we have seen unprecedented growth with the new startup breweries. And then a couple of years later, they're out of business. You know, we talk to people that work at other breweries, other businesses that grow so fast, they don't know who's in charge and they leave. That doesn't happen here. Or not that they go out of business. Then all of a sudden their beer sucks and no one will say it, but everybody knows it. 
you know? And so here you are, you've experienced this meteoric growth, double, tripled, quadrupled in size, make more beer than you ever thought you would, but your beer is no good anymore. That's another thing. We would never, ever let that happen. Our beer kicks ass every day. And we're proud as hell of that. And that is not by accident. In the craziest days of the Hetty Topper mania, of course, we could have sold so much Hetty Topper. We still can, but everyone was asking, you need to make more. You need to make more. Or raise the price. And we um, and raise the price. And we did open up this new production brewery to add another 10,000 barrels a year. And boy, did we get criticized. Not big enough. Not big enough. Huh. But we knew that we were in the middle of, again, this unprecedented kind of spike in craft beer. And, you know, John, you know, creating this hazy beer and... You know, we knew it was a fun time, but it wasn't going to last forever. Nothing like that does. So we were really looking at the long term. Okay, what can we manage without taking on investors? What can we manage without hiring a whole bunch of staff overnight? And what can we manage to make sure John's in, and our staff is in control of that beer and it tastes just as delicious tomorrow as it did yesterday? Bigger is not better. But you know what? The only reason we were able to do that is because we don't have investors. We answer to no one. And that's part of the slow growth. Well, oh my gosh, that is, that's something that gets so overlooked. And again, it's, you know, now that we're, we both turned 50 recently, you start talking like you're older, um, but you see new businesses opening and they want what we have right out of the gate. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. You don't build this in a year or two years. It's taken us I mean, that's just, we've almost been in business for 20 years. That's not the 10 years before that, that Jen and I were just working and planning, you know? So it's a, it is that long game. And if you, if you want to have longevity and quality and all of those things, it's a slow game. Uh, and uh, there's no substitution for taking your time and doing it right. And it's fun. Savor it, you know, you savor the process, you know? And I can honestly say I'm no happier today now. You know, I make a lot more money today. We both do than we did 15 years ago. We barely made ends meet. No happier today than we were then. Yeah. You think about the early days. Like you kind of, <laughs> you're like, it was hard, but man, building stuff out of the primordial ooze has its own talk about purpose and a sense of fulfillment. And uh, it's cool to hear you both talk about being able to appreciate the different stages so this brings me into the question you just talked about quality and i think everybody who knows the alchemist knows that is just not something that you all are interested in compromising on which then i think maybe leads to the interesting question of when it comes to trying to put out the best product you can every single time has that ever been at odds with certain sustainability initiatives where it was like, well, we maybe could employ this new practice or initiative, but it might cause, let's say, even a small hit to the quality of how of the final product? Has that been a thing? I don't know if I would ever that anything jumps to mind, but I will say what jumps to mind when I hear you in your line of questioning is the fact that you call it product. That's something we don't do here at The Alchemist. It's not product and um, it's beer. Uh, I learned that lesson a long time ago hearing a, an unnamed corporate 
Vermont brewer um, that loved to say the word product. And it drove me nuts, drove both of us nuts. And, uh, and their beer is terrible. We don't call it that because um, that insinuates it's a commodity like anything else. And you just make it, crank it out, and it sells. It takes too much care and attention to um, minimize it by referring to it as that. Um, and as for um, doing things that affect the quality of the beer, honestly, I don't know if anything, maybe it does for Jen, but nothing jumps to mind of anything that we've ever done that improves the quality of the beer that is expensive or or lays us out environmentally or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, I can't think of anything that has affected the beer negatively, but I think John could probably speak to how our new um, CO2 reclamation system is better for our beer. Um, because when you're talking about food safe um CO2. That's why there was a shortage, right? It was all, well, the recent shortage in Mississippi, I think there was fracking that made the the CO2 unsafe. Our CO2 is beautiful and safe. Well, yeah, our CO2 reclamation system that we work with, Earthly Labs, um, a company based out of Texas, and we now have these systems in place at both breweries, and we now produce 100% at both facilities uh, an abundance of CO2. We produce and recapture more CO2 than we actually use. So we no longer are slaves to the market of CO2. So there are, you know, it's been in the news, CO2 shortages, some breweries that are absolutely being financially impacted by shortages of CO2. So in that sense, it has been a tremendous help for us because we are at less risk of uncontrollable interruption. And using that gas... Uh, it has definitely benefited the quality of the beer. Um, it's a consistent thing, and um, we've noticed improvements in head retention and in flavor. So, uh, in that sense, it has only improved. Um, yes, we're, you know, the money that we spent on those, it's something that we had been wanting to do for years, but the technology only in the last few years has caught up to allow breweries our size to to utilize this kind of technology. I would say that our drive, our motivation to do that was seriously based in we wanted to not be producing greenhouse gas and just venting it into the atmosphere. I mean, which is what every brewery is. You're a greenhouse gas producer. You're producing CO2. That, you know, the benefits of it, the feel good part of it, or like the benefits to the beer, that that wasn't even, didn't even come into our decision making. I mean, we knew we wanted to spend that money and we knew at the point, at the time we decided, I don't think either one of us ever thought about a return on investment. I mean, that's just a cost of running an environmentally sound business. Yeah, the first thing was getting rid of the greenhouse gases. That was definitely the number one thing. And there are a lot of businesses out there that are not owned and operated by the sole proprietors, which is what we are. And that's part of our long game, never taking on investors, never growing before we were financially able to fund our growth ourselves gets us to this position where we can make a decision like that, where you might have board members or co-owners that say, well, that doesn't make financial sense. We're not going to spend that money. I'd rather have that money in my pocket. We don't have to make our decisions like that. We can uh, make the decisions that we want. Nobody tells us we can't. So I also think that there's a certain amount of that with 
any business, what are the owners? Why are you in business? What's your motivation? You know, if your motivation is just yank profits out of something, then of course, you're not, you're, that's the only way you're going to look at things. And so when I hear people complain like, oh, we can't afford to do that. It's like, sure mm-hmm. you can. Of course you can. Unless your business is teetering on the edge of going out of business, you can do it. You just have less money in your pocket. And you might not be able to do everything. You might not have multi-million dollar wastewater system like we have, but you can side stream. Every brewery in the country can side stream and get rid of their waste responsibly. And if you're going to build a new one in this day and age, please, of course, you should put one of these in your facility, even if it does cost you more at the beginning. It doesn't matter if if you're building a good business, it's going to outlive you. So do you have no concern for your impact? You know, it's like this is this. There is a cost to doing business and people just want to maximize profit and do it all for the cheapest possible way. But that's uh, that just doesn't jibe with us or our values. Mm -hmm. So let's stay on this for a minute side streaming yeah we're saying every brewery out there or people thinking of starting one can be doing this tell us more about this should be 100 percent. well i mean first of all the main ingredient in beer is water. water our water is threatened all over this country all over the world and we need to take care of it um and putting wastewater that's untreated down the drain wreaks havoc on our waterways and on our municipal systems, period. We all know it. You know, lots of breweries around the country are are falling into um, a number. They're producing enough where they're under regulation, permit numbers, and they're being regulated. But a lot of small breweries, um, distilleries, um, all sorts of food manufacturers aren't aren't being regulated and they're putting all their waste down the drain. Um, And that's part of the reason we have algae blooms in lakes, um, especially when there are storms and there are overflows. There's BODs. um, We talk about phosphorus. For us here at The Alchemist, at this brewery, we have a state-of-the-art biofilm reactor. We also have a full-time wastewater manager. We've invested a lot of money in it. But at our other brewery, the only step we take is side streaming. And it's a it's a big process. We do that here also. And it really brings the strength of our effluent down very, very far below our permit limits. And, you know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I really do believe that every brewery in the country should be doing that side streaming. Agreed. Um, the reality is that a lot of breweries exist in parts of the country um, where their waste municipality treatment systems can accept their waste. I've been to urban breweries in major metropolis areas that everything goes down the drain and it blows my mind because at the end of that drain somewhere is the waste treatment facility that's got to deal with it. And I don't care how big it is, you send 2,000 gallons of yeast down that drain, somebody on the other end is going to have a bad morning because they're trying to balance the biology in their system down there. They're probably underpaid, overworked, and throw their hands up in the air and just know that every once in a while their day sucks because the biology goes nuts. And then there's never time to trace it back. And and then if you try doing that things, people cry about regulation and added business costs. When really, uh, you know, cry me a river, you should have thought of this. You shouldn't have been irresponsible from the start. And this should have been part of your, you should have foreseen this coming. You know, you can't, 
I don't know. It's just, it's kind of crazy when people complain about it. So side streaming it is as simple as keeping the waste out of our drain. All the low hanging fruit, the yeast that we cannot use, the unfermented wort and the hops that come out of the whirlpool with every batch, uh, tank wash, anything that's easy and loaded with BODs, as Jen mentioned, biological oxygen demand. It's food for bugs. So we work with a locally owned company that owns a pumper truck, like a sewage pumper truck that is devoted to brewery waste. It has never seen sewage. It has been brand new. It's a brewery waste only. So that in and of itself is so achievable because everybody has waste systems in place. Every municipal area, regardless of size, small towns up to big cities, even if you're not regulated or forced to deal with this, it can be done and it can be done for not a lot of money. There are ways here in Vermont, it's, you know, they're leading the way, I think, of trying to. Our waste, our pumper truck takes it to uh, an anaerobic digester that turns it into electricity and puts that electricity back into the grid. Um, this is pretty low tech kind of things. A, a digester is not, you know, you're not shooting rockets to the moon. So there are ways to extract the energy from this waste before it even gets to its end game. Instead of just sending it to a municipal treatment center that 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 energy is lost. You treat the waste, you separate it from the water, but you're not extracting any value out of it. Um, so it's a very low cost way. We have 250 gallon totes, the big plastic cubes that you've seen, you know, places holds 250 gallons of waste that can be emptied in place or it could be pallet jacked into the back of a truck and hauled. We also use the 55 gallon drum. So our waste collection, they come in, they use a vacuum from the truck and they pump these tanks five days a week and then they take it to the digester and we keep going. So our wastewater facility only deals with the low strength, quote unquote, lower, lower strength waste that we produce. So then we take that next step. In Waterbury, that step doesn't exist. So that, that goes down the drain, that goes to the waste facility of Waterbury. And, uh, and we've seen firsthand what, what it does when it's unchecked and full strength. We know, you know, <laughs> you see it on a, on a smaller scale, but you see that this would happen in a, in a, in a, in San Francisco, you know, I mean, anywhere. So when we decided to invest the money in this stove facility and build our own aerobic digester, that was us again looking into the future into our future 20 years down the road it's our belief that eventually you're going to have to do this those days of being a brewery in an urban center where you just dump it all down the drain i cannot fathom that there will not be a day when that ends when they wise up and it's like whoa every brewery that's doing this you need to stop you need to start side streaming send us lower strength waste and we're going to make you do that you shouldn't be made to do that a, you should have foreseen it, or B, it should mean something to you that you are producing that much waste and you can't just put it down a drain and think it's just going to magically disappear at no cost to you. How is that? You're going you're gonna to yank profit out of a process and then throw the waste product away for free? I think for any small brewery that isn't side streaming now, um, my recommendation would be to start looking into it, start learning how to do it. 
um, make relationships with your wastewater um, facility managers in your town, you know, talk to them about the water, be upfront. And then even though it is inexpensive, like John said, it's a lot of work. So you need to get employee buy-in. So you got to communicate with your employees. You got to get them excited. It takes commitment and diligence for sure. Believe me, with our recycling, I mean, we haven't even spoken about actual physical recycling of plastic and trash and things like that. We spend a lot of our time doing this and then we travel someplace and we get to another beautiful part of our wonderful country and they don't even recycle like at all. And it gets um, depressing and daunting and then all of a sudden you start second guessing yourself like why the hell do we go through so much effort and and that's where it's like well nope it it empowers us even more it's like oh that i'll tell you why because we don't want to be like that it maybe it means nothing in the end but to us it does i'm not going to sit here and be a polluter and a waster and not admit it or not try to do something about it and lessen our impact. One example is, you know, our clear wrap, our shrink wrap, our pallet wrap. Even in the kitchen, we have little squares of plastic like drying on at the our rack. House, Even at our house, we all of our plastic, right? And you work so hard to do that. And then you turn on a football game and you see 100,000 plastic raincoats that they've given away for one game. And you just, ah, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, we, <laughs> we were watching our son's college football team on tv and yeah there's hundred thousand people in the stands and they're all wearing clear these plastic. clear plastic film i was like geez so they're just handing those out to everybody and as they leave the stadium there's wadding them up throwing them in the trash and they're going uh, right into a landfill for the next thousand years and i here here we are with our little wraps of plastic wrap drying on the counter so that we can recycle them and do something with them and it's like oh my god it's it, it's disheartening a when it's a progressive state university you're just like, yeah oh, it's like come on keep your chin up i mean there's going. there's students graduating the school in environmental studies and sustainability and the first thing we see is this game and it's like that it's like okay how about you have you know would it be that hard to have like dedicated bins big or- red bins that after the game rain back rain rain slickers here and everybody puts them in there and then something actually gets on because then what we do now we consolidate we have to separate consolidate until we can commoditize a a certain piece of waste a case in point our grain bags we separate the polywoven bag from the from the polyethylene liner we then until you fill a 54 foot trailer with one thing, it's worthless. The moment you consolidate, separate and make that big thing, it becomes a commodity and it can be recycled and there's money in it. So there's your pro. I mean, all of those jerseys, all those rain slickers could have gone in a bin and with a little bit of effort, they could have collected those 100,000 things and actually done with them what we do with them. You know, so again, but people like to stand around and talk about sustainability, but it's like, get off your asses and do something about sustainability. We get, we talk about that with our, when we get asked about starting our business and the success we've had. And I always talk about you're sitting around in college, smoking weed, hanging out. Everybody's got big ideas and they're like, yeah, we should do that. And then you're like, okay, so we actually have to get up now and go do that. You can't just say that would be cool. We should do that. It's like, that's the difference. We got up off the couch and did it. 
Well, you know? what we hear from a lot of brewers that come through to look at our sustainability efforts, um, they'll say, I don't have the resources to take care of the water. And then we'll suggest the side streaming. With the recycling, it's always, wow, it's so cool. You do clear wrap. You have your black rubber gloves. You have your green straps. Everything's separate. That, but our recycling company doesn't do that. They only do a mix. It's like, well, neither does ours. We're working to make this happen. And they're all being shipped off to different streams. It's not easy. Um, well, well, it doesn't the- cost a lot of money. It's work. And you have to be willing to do it crazy amount of legwork and and time you know just those brewery bags i talked about the recycling doesn't exist in this country for brewing bags over eight thousand craft breweries if you're a craft brewer out there and you're rolling up your grain bags and throwing them in the recycling bin they're not getting recycled you are either contaminating that load of recycling and they're throwing that entire load into a landfill or at their recycling facility, they're th- pulling those bags out and throwing them in the garbage. They're going in a landfill. There is no recycling for those. We, for the last like three years, have been working toward this, working with Lamoille County Solid Waste, working with the state, the environmental department of the state, working with, oh my gosh, so many different people. With our malt supplier, we've sat down with the companies, the malt companies, trying to talk to them about it. Um, and that's where we are. So we separate these bags, we create that. And so some of the things are plastic lining, like all clear stretchable plastic and those clear poly liners of our grain bags, those get made into treks, the artificial decking. Um, so it sequesters that carbon for many, many years. That is not something that just happens. <laughs> I mean, there, there's, we have to send that when it is a trailer load. I forget where it goes, but it goes like some other state, you know. So this is something that when we get the the National Brewers Association magazine and it's all this legislative stuff and this kumbaya feel good. Oh, you so you want to be in sustainability? All this, it's like, well, <laughs> put your put your voice toward this. You got to kind of push people to do it. And they need to really want to do it. And it's not going to be easy because like we said, we've gone to some states where recycling doesn't exist. They don't do it. Everything goes in the trash. Like they just don't even try. So I don't care where you are in this country. You know, it's not like we take our clear stretchable plastic down to the clear stretchable plastic department. You know, your employees, you're paying employees. That is it's time. It's effort. It's it's wanting to do it. It's a good reminder, I think, just that at our homes or in our businesses, we can do more and do better than just say like, well, yeah, my region doesn't recycle this or that. And what I think a big important thing that you both are saying here is, well, then go talk don't just say, well, my region doesn't do it. Go have the conversations to try to figure out how to change that. And I frankly think when it comes to issues of recycling, uh, speak for myself, that's actually a lesson I could use to hear, right? Because we are in, in you know, the Gunnison Valley. It's not, it's, it's a remote area and the rest and not, it's not the world's most sophisticated kind of recycling systems, right? It's like, okay, well then who do you band together in the areas? Who do you talk to at the municipal level? Who do you talk to in private companies that 
might be able to, you know, make the moves and make the kind of systemic change that I think you're talking about. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a reality that is everywhere. You know, there's, there's not a state in this country that doesn't have landfill issues. Um, it brings it back full circle to what we used to do at the pub and the early on what Jen said with the food recycling and food composting. I mean, food composting is now mandatory here in the state of Vermont, but this was years ago at the pub when we first brought this gentleman in to talk to our staff about composting and all of this. And we found out that the statistic that something right around 50% of all waste that goes into landfills is food waste, 50%. Um, and so the idea of legislating and um, making food composting a requirement, when people get upset about regulation and government overreach for something, when you start talking about something like that, it's like, please, <laughs> you know, people aren't just going to do it out of their goodness of their heart because they have other things to worry about. They, you know, they're living life. They're, they're doing what they got to do to survive. But something that is so simple can achieve so much. I mean, how many landfills are just pumping out methane into our atmosphere and everybody's worried about global warming and, and we're, we're doing nothing with this food. I mean, we're a huge agricultural economy in the United States and, and they're putting commercially made fertilizers on this land you know which has its own problems and you're wiping out native species you're wiping out um not, uh, uh, milkweed which is making all the monarch butterflies disappear and i mean it's just this crazy spiral of waste that if you approach it from um a more traditional and holistic angle you can solve a lot of these problems just by having the tiniest bit of personal responsibility i'm curious where you guys are getting your ideas from along these lines. Like if anybody comes to Stowe and to the Alchemist and takes a tour, I mean, it is at literally every turn you're hearing about this is what this machine does, or this is why we have this practice. It's, it's quite impressive, right? But I really want this conversation to be helpful and practical to other brewers and distillers out there. And then also just other business owners, right? That maybe we're there in a different category, but it, it can start to spur action. So where did all of this come from? Or do you have people coming to you to say, hey, we've developed this new procedure or this new machine, it accomplishes X, where, where does this all go or how does it start? And That's a good question. I think for our size, I think we are leaders in, in sustainability and environment, environmental work. So we do have um, lots of people coming to us, people eager to work with us. And I would say, you know, the, the folks that own the plant-based toppers that we recently put on, that's a good example of people that came to us where we get our our information and how we move forward with plans. I think that's stuff we really work out internally with our team, especially with Joel, because we don't, at this point, we don't have a lot of breweries our size to look up to. We're kind of like doing things our own way. For us, we 
really open up our networks and we reach out a lot to people that we want to have discussions with to try to not only move our work forward, but to move the state forward. Um, We uh, meet with legislators often, people that are making the laws uh, with the, the bottle deposit laws, the food scrap laws, you know, we're in constant conversation with them. Um, we have a close relationship with the director for natural resources with the state of Vermont. We've done walkthroughs of the brewery with her many times brainstorming, not only how to make ourselves more efficient, but how to share that knowledge and that ed- education with other um, breweries and other producers around the state. Um, so we even have the state coming to us asking how to do things and how to help lead. You know, we go and tour waste facilities. You know, we do. We we tour them. We see how the waste is managed. We learn about it. These are the kinds of things we do. John and I will drive and go walk through a solar field that's pollinator friendly. You know, we're, we're kind of like paving our own way at this point, but we're using the resources that are out there and they're not necessarily brewery resources because um, to be frank, you know, this industry is a has a lot of work to do so we're really looking outside and we're working with our community and state leaders it's a matter of walking around your business and opening your eyes Uh where's the need what's going out what's landing in your dumpster start there how do you reduce that you know i mean it's, it's that can be that could just be a corporate pencil pushing office what's in your trash what's going out like does it need to go where you're sending it any business any industry can do that it's a matter of motivation do you want to do you care enough to to make that change it's every one of them is gonna be like what's it gonna cost you know of course there's a cost to everything um you know anybody out there that believes in god there's a cost to every action you have you know so all these religious people that like to like to tout their beliefs Put your money where your mouth is because that's all talk. That that means nothing to me. Do something then. If you believe that there's some higher creator out there, then yeah, you're going to be judged too. And this is part of what you're going to be judged for. If you have to put it in those crazy terms, you know, I would like to think you could just talk to a human on a, on a reality level and just say, look, do you not see what impact you're having, you know, these, these are things that you're responsible for, for not somebody else. So take that step. And, uh, and yeah, it's going to cost you something, but if you're smart and you're opening a business now and you haven't put that as part of your research and your business plan, <laughs> do you even deserve to operate a business? And if it goes out of business, should anybody feel sorry for you? You know, I mean, it comes down to, to basic business practices as well, which I think is what Jen was talking, touching on in the beginning. You know, it's like, of course, you can lead with your heart, but you're also leading with your wallet. It needs to be a smart decision. But at the same time, some decisions don't have payoffs. They don't make you money. They don't add to your bottom line. They take away money from you. But at the end of the day, they have a benefit for your business because there you are. You're doing the right thing an investment it's an investment and uh, some of the things that we've invested in made no financial sense they'll take i mean that water room will take decades to pay off but we have breweries and legislators that come in here just to see that to learn what we did and how to do it and and the money that we paid for that in the front we don't even think about that now i mean that's just part of who we are so you can't always look at it as a return on investment. Let me ask you this. 
I think it's possible that somebody listening to this conversation might think they're hearing you say, well, you know, just be better at every single thing, every single thing. And maybe you are saying that. I come back to, you Mm -hmm. know, in your comments in the beginning of this conversation when you're like in the early days when we had a lot less money around here, we were like, let's make portions smaller. Let's try to reduce waste, right? And and I think that's a beautiful picture on the individual responsibility level. But I've also talked with people at huge companies who talk about, you know, they have entities come in to measure where would the biggest impacts be made operationally. And so some of the things that these folks have said that kind of look nice and it's maybe a better marketing story about, you know, they're doing this or that uh, on an operational basis turns out a much less sexy, much less glittery marketing story but with a lot bigger environmental impact and result would happen if they make a change over here. That's a long way of asking, have you all sort of had those kinds of evaluations leveled where it's like, okay, let's really look at the alchemist's impact and imprint and then started tackling the areas where you can make the biggest changes? Or is it more of like, haven't you heard, we're really just trying to solve it all the best we can? Yeah, we don't do any sophisticated uh, cost benefit analysis. You know, we're a small company. Um, there are just a few of us crunching numbers here, looking at things. So we don't waste our our time, you know, with too much fluffy stuff. Um, because for us, really, everything is important. We're we're doing authenticity. Really, leads everything. We really do care. We prioritize all the time. What do we think is most important? Um, what can we afford? And we're just always moving and always moving forward. But as far as sitting down and saying, "Boy, we could do this." This thing, it costs this much, it would get this much marketing versus this other thing that costs less, um, but doesn't get us as much. We don't do that. That's all. That's silly stuff for us. For us, we really care. And so do our employees. So we're always just moving forward. And we're a lot of times doing multiple things at once. You know, we're putting in a new, recently we were putting in a new CO2 reclamation system at our Waterbury Brewery while we were also installing our new plant-based four toppers. Um, and applicator, a, applicator, yep. um, and at the same time figuring out how to get our recycling better in the in the beer garden, you know. So we're always moving forward, um, and we just do things as we can. But it's not really sophisticated. It's not. We're just always moving forward. I don't think we've ever made any real decisions based on what kind of um, marketing press or marketing <laughs> we would get. I well, mean, that's, that seemed really... cl- that seemed clear to me. So yeah. just just to to be clearer, I wasn't worried about that in your case. I think, again, as many companies or founders or executives will be listening to this conversation, if we're like, look, this can kind of sound overwhelming. You guys have said multiple times in this conversation, turns out it's a lot of work. So thinking about how companies start down this road to make the biggest changes, the most impactful changes first, 
Yeah, you chip away with the ones that are, are, are the least expensive. It's the side streaming. It's the recycling. It is um, fostering a workplace culture where people care and people understand you are an environmentalist and that's really important to you. And they need to uphold the same values that you do if you're going to work there. Those are just a really good starting point. And then as you have money, you know, you add solar, which actually does build equity and save you money. Um, How many times we've flown over cities and you look down on the tops of these massive warehouses and it's just a big black rubber roof with HVAC equipment on it. And it blows my mind because I look down, if that roof was covered in solar panels, whoever owns that building wouldn't be paying a dime for electricity. They'd be making money. They would be putting electricity back into the grid. They would reduce the heating and cooling expenses on their building just because that solar beating down of the sun would be getting absorbed by those those power cells instead of by your roof. And we see this in sunny parts of the country. I mean, you know, you got states like Florida that actively keep the solar industry out of their state. I mean, that is crazy stuff. The sunshine state and you fly over and you hardly see any solar panels anywhere. How does that happen? How does that happen? And if I were building a new brewery, in a state that was prone to drastic weather and power outages, you better believe I'd be putting in solar and a way to store that solar so that I did, didn't lose production. Sure. You know? So you can hedge against disaster. The one small example is our CO2 reclamation. We read articles about breweries going out of business because they can't get CO2. Not us. And again, you know? it's not that there isn't CO2. It's not food quality CO2 that's available. And that, that was a big eye opener for me because I didn't really understand gases. And so, you know, to be able to use our own CO2, wow, that's a no brainer, I would think, for every brewery in the country. And you have industry um, that, that fights against carbon capture when capturing that carbon can make you money. You know, there are ways to, to commoditize that. There is a need like these it, it, industries that produce CO2. If there's a way to collect that, I mean, and, and use it, there's money to be made. So, I mean, these are all things that are outside of our world of operation. But these are things that we achieve. And I certainly can't imagine that it wouldn't be beneficial to other industries just like it is to us. I mean, this way of thinking scales up to just about anything you know it's a matter of building these expenses into your expectations and into your bottom line and in in if you have stockholders into their minds too you know you're not just not going to triple your money overnight but look this is going to earn some good money for the next 30 years and you can feel good about it too yeah, because we're actually about it. we actually give a shit so let me ask you just about other initiatives here at The Alchemist that you are excited about uh, because they've developed a lot over time or because they're brand new, the floor is yours. Take that question where you'd like to go. Great. Boy, there's so much John and I and our team are excited about here. Um, we've really been focused on The Alchemist Foundation recently, um, which we formed, boy, about 
eight years ago. We provide scholarships for local youth. Um, we've been expanding our foundation work, partnering up with local um, organizations, working on racial equity, um, helping to make our community more welcoming, um, things of that nature, partnering up with our schools to provide um, multicultural events, um, just exposure for youth um, in general. Aside from that, we're really proud of the work we've been doing internally, um, hiring employees with intellectual and physical disabilities. Um, we've been recognized by the state um, and we've won an award for that work we do. And it's super exciting. We have, um, you know, a few employees on the spectrum. Um, we have some with intellectual disabilities. We have a couple of employees who use chairs. Um, so we have a very diverse workplace and it makes our workplace so incredibly rich and productive and happy. Um, these employees are incredibly strong. They're reliable. Um, and they've made all of us just more empathetic and more caring and they've made us a stronger workplace. So we're really excited to continue that work. Um, I know John has a lot to say about that as well. It was almost been touched so much. <laughs> it was almost um, a magical change and improvement to the alchemist when we brought um, these employees in uh, and we, you know, that's been over the last couple of years, um, the diversity and what they bring to our workforce, there's so many intangibles that cannot even begin to be um, described. You really have to experience it. The energy, the, the boost in, I mean, morale was not lacking. We've always had a really dynamic, um, hardworking, yet fun environment. Um, but some of these employees are, are special in ways that you really can't describe. Um, and you see it even from some of our, our uh, I don't think we have anybody that I would consider tough, you know, but you know what I mean, that veneer of toughness. Um, some of these people, it's fantastic to see them work now and the smiles all the time, like all the time. And through this, uh, we've been exposed to a world that we, you know, that we hadn't been really directly exposed to before. Um, the organizations that we work with that place these employees with us, um, their handlers, their families uh, that we have come to know and to be exposed to in this whole thing is uh, so much more nuanced and rewarding than anybody would ever imagine. And when we hear some of the stories from their handlers and from the infrastructure of the adversity that they have faced in other workplace environments, uh, you want to talk about motivating. It can really anger you when you learn that there are businesses out there that can be so callous and so ignorant uh, so that when you learn the truth firsthand uh, makes it that much more of a powerful and rewarding experience. And I'll say, you know, we have a very diverse workforce and we have had 
all sorts of employees with unique challenges and um, different needs for support, whether they had uh, health challenges or they had substance abuse issues or they had mental illness, people that are chronically late. You know, you're always dealing with issues that employees have and everyone's on this very wide spectrum. I can say for the half dozen employees that we have that really do have intellectual challenges, problems of being late, being honest, getting along with coworkers, being sober. Being sober, these are not challenges we have. These folks strengthen our workforce and bring everyone up to a level that you cannot even imagine. Just yesterday we hosted the Hetty Trotter here, which is an annual running race. It's a 4-miler. And I'd say we had about a dozen employees in it. We had uh an employee who has intellectual challenges who ran the race and he did an amazing job. It was his second year. Um, we also have an employee who's in a chair. It was his third year doing the race. He, he uh, joined our wellness director for that. And then we also have an employee who's in a chair that used a recumbent bicycle for the very a first time, a hand, hand bike, bike, and was um, the first Alchemist employee to finish. So, it was such an exciting day. It was incredibly emotional. Um, you know, our employees got so much out of it. And, it, you know, I get chills just sitting here thinking about it, to be honest. And everyone is here at work today just talking about what a great weekend it was and just laughing through their shift. And there's just nothing more rewarding than that. It's a really special thing. And we encourage every business out there to explore that because you have no idea the rewards you get. They make us better people. They really do. We've talked about a lot of different things, which leads me to believe that we haven't actually talked about everything. And so, as if you haven't already laid out and detailed so many of the things you're working on, I'm tempted to ask what might be the perverse question of like, well, what else is on your radar? Whether it is more on the people side of the business, whether it is uh, with respect to new emerging cleaner technologies, what's on the radar? Well, I, I'll, I'm going to speak for both of us right now, and then I'll let John add. Our, our, our son um, is in college. It's his first year. John and I found out we were pregnant the day after we opened The Alchemist. We have done very little traveling in that time, if not for work. We have been 110% committed to work and raising our child. So I think we're really looking forward to um, doing some remote work in the month of January and staying warm. It's always been our dream. Um, and really just spending time together and being here at work together. It's so much fun. It's it's fun. We miss our son, but it's a new chapter for us. Um and also really focused on our community and helping to make our, our community just a little more welcoming to everyone. Yeah, we have some new ideas and they usually spring out of our travels. When we meet really great people or we see really great things happening, uh, we take inspiration from stuff like that. You know, definitely what Jen was hitting on there and what we've hit on so many times in these interviews, the level of work and attention that it takes to achieve what we have achieved and to maintain what we have created. Um, whoa, you know, I mean, geez, every once in a while you look up and uh, it's just crazy. Uh, the fact that we are 
just about at our 19th business anniversary, plus the years before that when we were together, plus the years before we met when we were both working multiple jobs and the years before that when we were both in college and working jobs and the years before that when we were in high school working jobs, it's time to start having a little non-work-based fun for ourselves. Um, but at the same time, we're never going to be those owners that just disappear and then everything falls apart. Um, so for us, that is a very tricky and complex thing. But I think um, all of these years have been working toward that to get to the point where you can confidently, um, you know, whatever, step away, work remotely for t even just two or three weeks here or there because we have such an amazing staff. We have surrounded ourselves with such talent over the years, such hand-picked and hand-groomed talent um, that that, I mean, we're hopefully going to start really um, reaping our, what we have sown. Uh, and so we're really looking forward to that. It's exciting for us to, to know that we have a fully functioning 18 year old, well adapted, awesome human being that we have raised and created. Uh, so it's such a, a feeling of accomplishment and it's a big change, you know, I mean, we have only had, we only have one child, um, and it's, was a change that quite frankly i wasn't even prepared for you know well i think we all have our own ways of dealing and the mine is generally to just block it out and pretend it's not happening uh so it was a big it was a big shock to the system but then you quickly adapt and and it's amazing because jen and i we we're in here in the office like last week and we we're just hanging out laughing having fun we're doing work you know but but it was so great it's like huh we look at us we're not like oh we got to get home make dinner we got to do it you know all of a sudden it's jen and john again which is what it was you know before everything before life throws you life you know so for us it's such an exciting time because now here we are it's the two of us again but now um we have more than $10 in our bank account. <laughs> you know? um, so it, it's a, it's a great stage in life to be. And we miss yeah. our son, but we still get to do what we sure. love. We're so blessed. And do we have any big things in the works? I don't know about that. You know, nothing major. We're always improving what we can improve when we can improve it. You know, we have, things on our three-year list, our five-year list. Uh, so, it's nothing that I, I think either one of us would be ready to, to release to the world, but we always have really cool ideas percolating in our brains. And is it going to, will it be worth it? Should we do it? You know, I mean, we've had plenty of ideas that later we're like, oh boy, well, I'm glad we didn't do that, you know, because it would have been really cool, but now we'd have that and we'd be dealing with it but no growth no no increased uh, beer production no you know it, when we talk about change we're talking about just evolution yeah. new art new exciting experiences fun and and it's interesting in the world of beer so many breweries feel the need to 
oh, new, new, new. We're always switching it up. What are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? To, to a fault. We do what we do. We don't veer. I don't get caught into wacky trends. I'm not going to make a beer that doesn't speak to me. Uh, we don't do that kind of stuff. What we do is what we do, and we do it the best, which, you know, is pretty close to the best. Do it the best you can, um, but that is what drives us when we're 85 and people have been drinking Heady Topper for whatever, 40, 50 years, we want people to still be like, wow, when they open that and they taste it, there's no hype. There's no bullshit. The proof is in that that package. The proof is in that can. You know, to this day, it doesn't matter. I'd take a can of that off the line and put it next to any IPA produced on this earth and be like, all right, let's see what you think. And Which that, do you prefer? And that's the backbone of The Alchemist. It's the quality. It's the consistency of the beer. It's the authenticity. And it's not getting sidetracked with trends. You know, there's no rebranding. There's no hard seltzer. We do what we do. We do it the best we can. But you are still experimenting with recipes. Your 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 brain is spinning on some of this. Oh, my gosh. That's all I think about all the time. <laughs> sure. Sure. Innovation. And, and ingredients and how they play together and how you produce it consistently and make it awesome all of the time. You know, when I talk about stuff like that, I'm talking about the wacky trends. You know, people, you know, my beer tastes like chocolate chip cookies. Well, how'd you get that? Well, I put a thousand pounds of chocolate chip cookies in it. It's like, well, who gives a shit? Yeah. Or beer course, that's not beer. Of course, it tastes like chocolate chip cookies. Make me a beer with barley, water, yeast and hops that taste like chocolate chip cookies i'll be impressed you know so it's stuff like that i mean the the wackiness of the craft beer explosion and the i mean it's just it's out of control and if all you can do is drink two ounces of it before you burn out on it it's not good sorry i don't i i, I don't believe that you know there's a certain amount of it, you have to you have to want to keep drinking it for it to be great. There's a lot of beer out there that you really don't want to. Or at most, you oh, yeah, I could have an ounce of this, but that's it. I'm done. As crazy or as wacky as it gets, you should still have a desire to have a complete serving of it. Maybe another one. I really appreciate the time. And I think one of the byproducts of this conversation is uh, you convey with real clarity the cool partnership that you two have and uh that's really fun and i think probably pretty special uh, if not unique but um to be able to approach all that is happening in and around the alchemist and to have each other as sounding boards and to pitch the ideas and then to decide that maybe that's this isn't the right time for that thing, but maybe in five years, that seems quite special. And uh, so, uh, I appreciate all the thoughts on sustainability in its sort of broadest sense, which is where I think we ended up here today. But um, fun too to kind of just get to hear the two of you talk about these things and the history and the future of it. So, thank you very much. Thanks, Jonathan. It was great having you here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. 
Well, that's it for this edition of Crafted. I want to say thanks to Jen and John for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And I want to say thanks to our Blister Craft Collective for supporting this episode and making it possible. And then, of course, to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these conversations, then it would mean a lot to us if you would take just a minute to rate and review this show and it will help us keep this whole thing going and growing. And that's it for now. I am going to be here in Vermont this entire week. And while I'm here, I am going to be recording a number of other very interesting conversations for this Crafted podcast. And I am really looking forward to those conversations as well as sharing them right here with you. So that's it. Thanks, everybody, and we will talk to you real soon.